breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. And welcome back to another week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always fantastic to be with you. There's nothing I enjoy more than the time we have to uh, talk about the issues of reform, to share with you the insights and the thoughts of an American Muslim who loves his country and believes that the best, shortest pathway to national security is through American Muslims being at the head of the spear against political Islam, against theocratic Islam, and the clerics that are radicalizing our community. And when you have a quarter of the world's population, near a quarter that's Muslim, if Muslims don't solve this problem, it will never be solved. Always a lot to talk to you about. This week I'm going to change gears a little bit. As many of you know, I'm not just a Muslim. I'm first and foremost an American, but I'm also a physician, a doctor, primary care, internal medicine. And I've also had significant interest in specialization in bioethics. I've done quite a bit of training in bioethics, run a bioethics program for a large healthcare institution, and um, have always had a distinct interest in the most puzzling, most difficult medical dilemmas that face us in the practice of medicine. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time today talking about physician-assisted suicide, what that is, what's happening about it across the country, and why faith plays such a role in some of the positions that many of us have on this, and what the interface is between between the practice of medicine and end-of-life issues. The other aspect, I think that, and this week is sort of the medical week, if you wish, if you will, this coronavirus issue, again, I'm not going to get into the medical treatment issues, risks, etc., but I do want to talk about how authoritarian countries like China, where the state means more than the humanity does to their totalitarian government and how what that what we can learn from this and how it relates to what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims and others. So, first, let's talk about coronavirus quickly. Uh, this has been on the top of the news for the last few uh, last month. Uh, the virus originated, we believe, in late uh, December 2019 from some of the uh, unusual, to put it best, food practices done in the Wuhan province where there's either preparation or lack of preparation of bats, snakes, other types of animals. And somehow the virus, coronavirus called because it looks like a crown and it's similar to the cold virus, same type of a a novel type of cold virus. Coronavirus then leaps into a human vector. We now find out there's a Dr. Jang who was the whistleblower Nobody knew about him until recently. And this poor man just passed away. China would have you believe that he died just from the virus. And I'll tell you why I don't believe that in a second. But 
bottom line is as this virus then starts to be transmitted, the the containment of it initially is almost impossible because it has an incubation like the cold virus of one to two weeks. And like the cold virus, the vast majority of people survive it and are fine except having fevers and chills and coughs and congestion for a week or so. The people who succumb to it are those who get more florid respiratory infections in the lungs and the other systemic septic response, systemic response, if you want, and have other ailments such as liver disease, emphysema, respiratory disease, heart disease, diabetes, etc. And that's where we see most of the deaths. Fast forward now two months later, China finally tells the world about it about a month later into mid, early mid-January. And they claim to be doing everything they can by actually starting backwards. They quarantine entire cities of 5, 10 million people, 60 million people unable to enter or leave Wuhan province and, and city and elsewhere that they feel are the highest concentration. And I say backwards because the first thing to do when you have a novel virus is to open up the information, the contacts, the symptoms, the data, the healthcare information of the transmission of vectors, not only patient one, but patient two, three, 10, 50. And to begin to open up that information, well, this is why many of us called for, and I had done some interviews on this nationally in Newsmax and elsewhere, in which I said, the World Health Organization needs to call an emergency on this, and sure enough, a week later they did, as many had called for, and they did listen. Not because necessarily they've only done so a few times, and one was in the SARS epidemic in 2004. And it was necessary because the country of origination that is over a billion people is not one who you can believe any of its information, and the information they reveal is often fabricated, false, contrived and makes their government look good. And what's relevant to this program is not just because I, I, I like to keep us relevant here, but China's authoritarian system creates responses to every crisis that's not only pathological, but is always about collectivist, totalitarian interest of the party, of Xi's party. President Xi will continue to run a tyrannical regime based on the survival of his party and his government. So you have millions of Muslims in Uyghur containment, in Uyghur internment camps in which they're being forced to eat pork, forced not to fast in Ramadan, forced to read things they disagree with, uh, declare their allegiance to the party, and convert out of Islam. And they will stay in those camps until they do. The government then also assigns to each Muslim a government apparatchik that makes sure that their life at home, if they're not in an internment camp, is not one of Islam, but one of the party. So now there's talk about the coronavirus exposees, or those who've been exposed to be interned which they call quarantine. Meantime, the number continues to exponentially grow around the world. 
with almost 30,000 cases as of this weekend and almost 600 dead. 90% of those are in China, but now it has grown and spread beyond that to include 13 cases in the U.S., many in Europe, 9, 10 cases, if not more, 20 or so in Australia, Philippines, Hong Kong, etc. So, again, many of the issues, as we talked about the Uyghur Muslims, people said, well, this is just a Muslim issue. Yeah, my heart goes out to them, but it doesn't matter. Now you have a virus that's spreading with them using the same methods to torture and quarantine their own people. And the doctor who was the whistleblower all of a sudden has died. And they say he died of the virus, but yet it doesn't necessarily make sense when that same government was releasing videos showing people in masks and everything with the patient next to them and it says cured. Their propaganda on Chinese TV said cured. People aren't cured of the virus. It runs its course as the storm passes. If they survive, then they survive the passing of the storm. But the storm was not cured, was not defeated. It passed through and the patient survived. Until we have a vaccine, which is going to take 8 to 12 months, we won't have a cure. So the misinformation, disinformation is key. And I want you to take the same understanding of the evil of what is the Chinese government and put that into why our companies are complicit, like Apple, Lenovo, IBM, others, and complicit in what is the evil of so of the Chinese economy and what they do around the world. And that President Trump's position on China, and not only on free trade, but on limiting and making sure that they pay their fair share and that they do not treat us in a, in a way that's unequal, but rather putting them in their place has been, a, a, I think, a refreshing change. But I think we also need to understand that the way they're treating humanity, mistreating humanity and the inhumanity of their policies, has been demonstrative of not only the way they treat Muslims, but any vulnerable population. And I think that's the teaching point. And that's what we should understand when we deal with governments like the Chinese. They steal our secrets. They steal our technology. They claim it to be their own. They retrofit it. They steal our information. And then... They try to defeat us. And in the top two threats, as much as I focus most of the time on radical Islamic terrorism and the need for reform, number two, if not Islamic terrorism, number two, number one is China. And number three is Russia. These are the main threats to America's security. Briefly, by the way, this week, bombing, carpet bombing, more inhumanity has continued on the town of Idlib. And we knew weeks ago that ISIS, radical Islamist groups, that that was their long last stronghold, 
had been defeated, had been decimated. But as I've told you before, 80-90% of the attacks by the regime, the Assad regime, have been on moderate non-Islamist neighborhoods, and they use and allow the persistence of ISIS in order to legitimize that, in order to legitimize horrific war crimes, genocide against primarily Sunni neighborhoods and those who were leading the revolution against the Assad regime. But I think what's important now in the context of threats, it is Russia now that has given the green light. It is Russia that has given the green light to continued to continued horrific bombing. and destruction and the killing machine that persists in Idlib and war crimes that nobody's paying attention to. So the war is not over. And 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 this is happening with no evidence of any significant return fire from neighborhoods. This is not in the middle of a civil war anymore. This is a one-way carpet bombing of just neighborhoods that I guess intelligence operations from the Syrian government and from Russia have have told them from years ago that they're just exacting revenge right now. But those intelligence operations have basically said that these are neighborhoods that were part of the core resistance in the revolution and need to be destroyed. But there's no evidence of security threat coming from them now. And that's why I bring it up because Russia is greenlighting this. Turkey had a little bit of a entanglement with some of the Russian troops there this week. Turkey's also not a good actor in this and that they've been helping the wrong groups, the Islamist groups, as their main operation is to try to decimate Kurds. So the mess continues. Just because, yes, we hear repeatedly that ISIS has been defeated 100%. That's essentially true that they have no longer any land or any significant weapons or financing. So yes, they're defeated. But jihadism continues to flourish and will flourish exponentially as you have regimes like the Assad regime, Putin's regime, using various neighborhoods in Syria as a wasteland to destroy their opponents. And then the radical Islamists like President Erdogan of Turkey also then responds against the Kurds, and you have a a brewing cauldron of more and more ISIS and jihadists that will continue to come out of there. So don't forget about that. Now, I wanted to talk to you about this conversation about end of life and the topic includes seven states now that have legalized Physician-assisted suicide. Now, they've, in an Orwellian way, changed the name of that to Medical Aid and Dying, M-A-I-D. And as a doctor and as an ethicist, I would tell you that I find that change Orwellian and offensive. Because dying is a process. Dying is something you could metaphorically say we're all doing because our time on this earth is definite, not infinite. But then when you have a terminal diagnosis defined as a life expectancy less than six months, that that terminality is dying, is why you would define dying. 
Death is that moment in which your heart stops and you are no longer alive, in which if you're a believer in the God of Abraham or the vast majority of faiths, you would say that that is the moment in which your soul, your roh, as we say it in Arabic, leaves your body and that the vehicle of carrying your soul is no longer in your body. And, and I bring this to this program and all of you today because I think it's good sometimes to, for us on a religious plane not always to talk about geostrategy and political war and, and jihad and concepts of day of judgment and this, this sort of eschatological inflammatory language and look at some of our daily life's issues about family, about health. And when it comes to health and dealing with disease, one of the primary, if not the primary reason I went into medicine and to be a doctor, a physician, is because of the, the sanctity, the, the purity that I saw in the work of healthcare in partnering with patients and making them optimize the feeling of well-being they have in dealing with the body that God gave them. And that body, whether it's afflicted with metabolic conditions, diabetes, cardiac, cardiovascular conditions, heart attacks or strokes, or oncologic cancer conditions, with tumors and metastases, that ultimately navigating that with them as their primary care doctor is a privilege that I'm honored to have and be a part of what I do day to day and every day. It has saddened me, and as I teach some of the medical ethics courses in which we talk about these things, it saddens me to see how few doctors now or less and less, invoke the name of God, invoke religion, invoke spiritual struggles with their patients when they talk to them about praying for them or hoping that they maintain hope. It's amazing. Some of that is the hyper-secularization of culture. Some of it is the fact that we seem sometimes much more uncomfortable with verbalizing some of the things we feel. There was a swing in the practice of medicine towards a more consultative role rather than paternal, and that's because the era of Marcus Welby in the 60s was too paternal. We told patients what to do. We told them to take this medicine, didn't even really tell them what it was for. And part of the civil rights movement rightly bled over into medicine to empower patients to feel that they can have ownership and make choices and get second opinions and third opinions. Now, some of that has eroded the trust of physicians and some of that erosion was deserved as physicians often, I think, did not want to take the time to explain to patients and now they often feel frustrated. I think a lot of that frustration is financial because there's just not enough financial remuneration for going through the details of what Dr. Google tells patients and they bring into the room and you have 15 minutes 
to go over with them their visit, and they've got enough questions for an hour and a half because of everything they've Googled and chat rooms and et cetera that they discuss things. But at the end of the day, the, the pendulum will swing back and forth between paternalism and autonomy, and we try to navigate the center, which is be the patient's consultant, but help them in the stewardship of their body towards health. And I, I, I preface all of this because I, I do tell you that as as little as, you know, most of my patients know that I'm a devout person, that God is a central part of my life, but I don't think they would tell you that they feel that it's necessarily all about Islam or that they would know what flavor of Islam I practice. They just know that faith and integrity and humility, these character traits and motivations and compasses, if you will, are part of who I am. And it would be no different than the directions and manifestations of any devout Christian, devout Jew, Sikh, or those even in the non-Abrahamic faiths, be it uh, any other faith. But devotionalism and the respect for the humanity of an individual's soul and their body and autonomy, I think, is central. And I say this because as we talk about what is physician-assisted suicide, well, this movement is a movement now that is legal in seven states, Vermont, D.C. also, California, Oregon, Colorado, and others. It's a movement that basically co-opted legislatively doctors to allow those people who have terminal illnesses, and they have protections in the legislation that says it needs to be certified, there needs to be a 15-day waiting period for some states, etc., in which if you decide... If you decide that you have a terminal illness and you don't want to live through the pain and agony of death, that you can then determine the time and place and method of your death. And that method, rather than it being grotesquely not involved with something you would try to do to yourself, God forbid, that a physician would provide the means for that death through a lethal prescription, and usually it's of a lethal dose of barbiturates. And I think the term that best describes that is physician-assisted suicide. So a patient may have a, we saw this, for example, when Senator McCain was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforme, a terminal form of a severe form of brain cancer than which there's very little treatments for. He then rests his soul was found to be terminal and passed away within six months to a year. I think it was a year after his diagnosis. The reason I bring that up is then other stories happen at the time of other patients with that, and the media glorified a year ago here in Arizona a young girl, 30 years old, with glioblastoma multiforme who could not, they said how... How, how pathological it was that she could not make this choice here in Arizona because it's illegal. So she went to Oregon, got a lethal dose of barbiturates, brought it back, brought it back to Phoenix, 
to Arizona, went to the Grand Canyon, and took the dose and died there. Rest her soul. Now, I was horrified. This story was, she was painted as a heroine, a courageous young lady that made a tough choice but did not want to live through the horrors of dying. And all of the other aspects, the stories of those who choose to struggle with their, with their illness until natural death happens. They go through palliative care. They go through hospice. And they're made comfortable. Other narratives were not heard in the media. Just the narrative that this courageous girl decided, lady decided to make this difficult choice. Yes, it's a difficult choice. And my position on physician-assisted suicide is, listen, laws of society against suicide, I think, on the one hand, make sense because, uh, and for the life of me, I don't understand why suicide is pathological for a healthy 16-year-old teen that wants to kill themselves. And we say that that person should actually lose their autonomy and thus be institutionalized because we value life to the point that we realize that psychiatric illness that wants to then destroy that own person is a pathology that needs to be treated because we value life and want to help that person through that illness. And that's a good. And no, we try to avoid taking away their autonomy. And yes, in the 60s, 70s, there were too many people who mental illness was over-treated and over-institutionalized. But now we're swinging the other way too. But to say that somehow suicidality, the principles against the change when that person has a quote-unquote terminal illness, I think belies reason. Now, from a liberty perspective, and this is why it's important to this program, right? From a liberty perspective, it's not necessarily the role of the government to tell people they can't kill themselves. Because if we choose autonomy to be able to decide, this is why I think calling healthcare a right also is a slippery slope that's difficult. Because when you say it's a right, then the government can then, if they're paying for it, has a right to interfere in what you eat, what you, whether you smoke or not, all the things you do to your body because they're paying for it. We can have that argument if you want, a whole other conversation about socialized medicine versus making sure patients have skin in the game for the choices they make. But the bottom line is it's the same thing when it comes to deciding if you have a terminal condition that you want to end your life. So... Am I making a position then for assisted suicide? No, I'm not. I'm saying that if the, if the assisted suicide movement wants to create a new profession, individuals that would be forms of assistant executioners that would provide that prescription, I do not believe that this is a skill set that doctors need to have or do have. The ability to determine if somebody checked all the boxes that they're doing things of their own volition and they aren't psychiatrically driven by voices or other things that they truly want to just simply, they understand their diagnosis and they want to die. Okay, why does that have to be an MD? I think it erodes, there should be a firewall between people seeing MDs and understanding that we as a profession protect 
quality and quantity of life. But not always just quantity at any extreme. Yes, do we have a problem sometimes in the medical industry of unnecessarily prolonging life? Absolutely. But that's communication issues. That is poor training. Just like in the pain crisis and the opioid crisis now as a result of tons of different influencing problems. We went from a, a society 10, 20 years ago before hospice, etc., that was under-treating pain. And then they went through a process that was hyperbolic in which they developed a fifth vital sign, which was pain. And now we have millions of people addicted to opioids. And that addiction, we're trying to ratchet back. And now it's becoming harder to treat people just in the past six months, I've seen in my own practice it much more difficult to get patients into pain clinics for treatment of legitimate pain because of this fear of the opioid treatments. So these pendulums swing back and forth, but I use the opioid example for you because if you think that somehow creating a system in which the healthcare system provides that safety valve, and you think that it won't be then used, just like the opioid crisis was used by the makers of OxyContin and others in order to get people addicted so they could make more money. If you don't think that physician-assisted suicide, if you cross the firewall and physicians start doing this, not only will it erode trust in our profession morally and ethically and professionally, but it will also become used by government. So if that system, if they, if they want to create a network of providers, some type of ancillary provider that will, just like the marijuana clinics are outside, outside medicine, outside traditional allopathic medicine, I'm okay with that. I don't, well, I don't want government getting interfering in that. But what I do believe is that it's not aid in dying. That is an intentional linguistic jujitsu put into place by the movement to try to, by the movement that wants to put into place these laws and co-op docs, so they call it aid in dying. Dying is a process in which we don't know when that death is going to happen, but people are dying. And the biggest part of, about this story that I think bothers me is that Listen, I understand every one of us has people in their family that have gone through dying and you wish that they had suffered less. You wish that the time could have been shortened. You knew they were headed towards death. So why wait and prolong the inevitable? That seems like the natural human reaction. Well, the first thing is it doesn't have to be that inevitable. There is a huge difference in even legally when your intent to provide pain treatment when your intent is to make the patient comfortable, that's not killing them, especially when you don't know when they're going to die versus handing them a lethal dose of barbiturates that they will die within 60 seconds or more of taking or, or, or 120 seconds of taking it. That's killing, that's self-killing that we hand them the Smith & Wesson to do it with versus treating their pain, palliating their comfort, stopping hydration, unnecessary nutrition, unnecessary treatments, unnecessary antibiotics, letting infections succumb. Most of the times, even 
in Alzheimer's disease, which doesn't affect major organs. If you stop, if a patient has lost their touch with the world and you just make them comfortable and stop hydration and necessary nutrition and you make them comfortable, they're not going to starve. They're not going to feel thirst if they're comfortable. And they're not going to last longer than a week or so. And that's not killing. That's not a prescription that invokes death in which you play God. And this is why I I wanted to talk about this here because at the end of the day, as a doctor, but also as a Muslim, I could never write somebody a lethal prescription. If I know that I'm giving this to end their life, that becomes God. No different than the Khomeinists think they're God by telling a woman if she can wear a headscarf or telling society what Islam they should practice. When I write a prescription that determines the time, even if the patient takes it themselves, they will feel some comfort knowing that a doctor has given them the imprimatur of our profession to provide them sanction of that self-killing. Yes, it's the most difficult time in anyone's life and we don't want them to suffer and we can make them comfortable. But to think that we can't make them comfortable is a failure. And to think that that tool in their toolbox should include should include assisted suicide with lethal barbiturates is absurd. And I know if you do polls, you're going to say, well, many doctors most now agree that they should, this should be provided. Well, again, first of all, I'll give you two answers to that. Righteousness, morality is not done by plebiscite. One of the reasons America is, a, is, is not necessary, is not a democracy, and the word democracy does not appear in our founding documents, but we're a republic is because the final authority is the Supreme Court. It's not the majority vote. And we're divided into federalist government based on 50 states, not by a majority as the left wants to happen in America, where then America will be run by California and New York. So I bring that to you because, you know, in medicine you may find that many doctors now are beginning to feel that we are inhumanly, unnecessarily prolonging life. But the special the specialization of and analyzing, of analyzing and balancing medical ethical dilemmas with a, a, a balanced gravity of the morality. I'm not saying that people can't disagree with my position without understanding medical ethics and being grounded in it, but but simply polling people about making a decision about what should be practiced by medicine is problematic. Just like I don't want polls to determine the standard of care for cardiology or oncology or general surgery or or any subspecialty, they determine their own. The practice of medicine, when it gets to the dilemmas like this, is not done by plebiscite and majority vote. 
the honoring of life, the protection of life. If physicians, just like should physicians be involved in capital punishment? You may say, you may make an argument and say, we want to make sure that the execution of people, and by the way, I support capital punishment. Now that might seem like a, a, a hypocrisy. We can have another conversation about that at another time. It's not today's program. But I do not believe MDs should certify and be participants in the lethal injections, gas or whatever way is, is used to kill people on death row. That can be done by the state and by their executioners. And yes, there have been many problems in states that have rightfully put pauses on that because their prosecutorial systems have been found to have problems with some of the cases of folks on death row. But still, should doctors be involved? It doesn't have to be. And I think that's the ultimate part of my position as not only a physician, but as a Muslim. One of the reasons, again, back to the beginning of what I said, one of the reasons I went into medicine was because I wanted to be part of this covenant of the protection of the quality and quantity of life and the maximization of the time in which each of us is able to enjoy our soul's rent lease, if you will, of our body. And I don't believe we own our body. Remember, we've talked about why suicide bombing is not a, an appropriate, beyond the, the targeting of innocence, etc., which is the viciousness of jihadists and, and asymmetric warfare of cowards. But even in war, you look at the Japanese and the kamikazes, is that appropriate? And I would tell you, if you look at, I'm not an expert on Catholic war theory or Judeo-Christian war theory, but I can tell you as a Muslim, to end your life intentionally in order to complete any good, whatever it might be, is not permitted. It's not Islamic. Because we don't own our own bodies. God loans it to us. We did not determine the time of entry nor the time of exit. Because once you say you determine the time of exit, then you could say, well, you determine the time of entry, and we don't. It's not our choice. It's God's choice. And if God is making that decision, then we need to stay the heck out of it. If you're humble, if you believe in the spiritual humility of an individual who bows down to pray and worship before God. And I think this is one of the problems, is that at the end of the day, whether it's physician-assisted suicide or any type of self-killing, if God is not a central part of your life, it's hard to make the argument. It's almost impossible when you know the odds you know, one of my arguments often is that, well, maybe pancreatic cancer metastatic has a 98% mortality, but it's not 100%. We know cases. I remember them because there's so few, but I know cases of people diagnosed with what they thought were terminal diseases that then three, four, five years later, they're still enjoying their time with their families. So this is one of the problems of a 30-year-old young, vibrant lady deciding 
She wants to just end it and not suffer through it. You miss the narratives of those that have hope and defy the odds and allow God to determine the time of entry and exit. So the arguments, the legitimate theological arguments can be made and I think are a big part of who we are. The Hippocratic Oath, one of the lines, you know, some physicians say, oh, it's no longer relevant, it needs to be thrown out. Uh, most of the Hippocratic Oath is rooted in Judeo-Christian theology. I shall not give a drug intentionally that harms the patient. Intentionally that harms. Yeah, we know that sometimes things can have side effects and un unknown impact but intentionally this is again the root of common law in america in the west it's based on intent if you fall asleep at the wheel and kill somebody you may not even end up in jail but if you do vehicular jihad and you drive intentionally to kill somebody first degree murder you could get the death penalty so intent matters in most, in almost every moral, ethical argument and discussion about these issues. And I think the discussion of physician-assisted suicide centers on that. The issue of intent and allowing natural death, allowing them to succumb from either the primary diagnosis or Natural illnesses that we decide just we won't treat. You can decide not to treat things and allow patients to die more naturally and succumb from the complications of their illness without unnecessarily prolonging their death. Thank you for allowing me to have this conversation with you. I think it's an important part of who I am and how I think devout Muslims can begin to have a rational assessment into any topic that's controversial, be it personal rights, family rights, interference of government into personal decisions, interference of your parents, of, of various networks, whatever it might be. Every conversation we have should be rooted in a rational argumentation, a critical thinking, you know. Uh, one of the programs coming up, we're going to be talking about sort of the evolution of how these societies like Saudi Arabia and others can evolve. And one of the main things they're missing is understanding critical thinking. And just because I have the positions that I have doesn't mean I'm trying to devalue others, but I'd like to have that debate. Because I think as people hear the debate, you will get others to change their mind about it. And that's why we have debates. It's not to force my opinion on others, but to have an impassioned discussion based in rational discourse, not just based in this is my way the high, or the highway. So next time, they asked, they asked Pete Buttigieg this week on the CNN Town Hall about one of the one of the advocates for the right to die, as they're called, asked him about this issue, and he danced around it, and I tweeted out the hashtag, pandering Pete. He couldn't even respond with his position on it because he didn't want to offend one side or the other 
of the right to die movement that wants physicians to be able to write them those prescriptions. And I think it said a lot about the fact that this is where we are in American discourse today is that people are either inflammatory to where they're doing scorched earth policy against people they disagree with or they're not even letting us know where they stand because they want to please everybody as they run for the primary. Well, God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And uh, tune in next week as we bring in more issues that have to do with Islamic reform and the debates that we should be having inside and outside the American Muslim community and the global Muslim community. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Find me on Twitter, Reform This Radio, or at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser. God bless. Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.